And so one of the things I was telling somebody last week, I, I was just saying, you know, it's going to probably take a little longer than I expected. It may take two years. I don't know. But as I was thinking through that, I was thinking that in, in one sense, as we're going through the gospel of Mark, it's sort of like as if we're, if we could do this, such a thing, it's sort of like building a diamond from scratch. And as you're putting this diamond together, you have lots of different facets. And each week, as we kind of build this thing, we, we're going to see different facets of Jesus. And that's why it's worth actually going through it a little slower, because we want to see Jesus as he truly is. And so, as a way of illustration or metaphor, that's kind of a maybe a picture, and, and that's why we're going through this line by line, so that we can really see who he is, how beautiful he is. And each passage will show us something different. Each verse will show us something different about the Son of God. And so, uh, I also want to just give one announcement, and I, I, it's worth sharing, uh, because we're just so proud of our church in Japan. Uh, they they uh, sent us a, a kind of sermon notes, I guess, and we sort of have to put the pieces together and figure out what it means. But uh, uh, they are planning on going to Malaysia for a mission trip, Woo! which is pretty amazing. Take basically what we gave them uh, a few years back, and and now they're applying that. Wow. And uh, I would love to be there with them as they go to Singapore and they cross the border there. There's that bridge that that goes across in Malaysia. And so that's where they want to be. That's where they feel called to be. And uh, I just couldn't be more thrilled to call them our our friends in our our church that we planted a couple years back. And uh, they've, like I said, they've have I don't know they more than double. They have seven life groups now. Um, they're growing. Uh, they're multi-generational, multicultural. Uh, they have so many nations there. If, I don't know if you remember that video that we showed uh, a few man, a few months back, or maybe six months back. I don't remember what it was, but they had all these different nations in the video, and it's just so cool to see uh, what God's doing there. Uh, all we did was just say, "Look, we're just going to hand down and pass down what we've been handed." Right? There's nothing special. It's not like we, we did anything special or unique. We just said, look, Lord, you've given us this amazing treasure. We've got to give it away to somebody. And, and that really is the, the nature of church, the disciple-making church. And so can't wait to get back overseas, get back at it. I mean, you can't wait either. Um, we're praying through where we should go and what we should do. But right now we plan on saying, well, San Francisco seems to be right. The next step It's a very international city, especially an Asian city, uh, specifically a lot of unreached groups there. And uh, so start saving your money and putting that away and, and believing that our whole church can be able to go again on mission together. Believe for 200 people to go. And uh, we're just shy of that uh, in the last two mission trips. It took 180 to uh, D.C. and to Miami. So, ready to go? Yeah. Let's get into this. This will be really relevant and helpful for you guys as you're sitting around the dinner table uh, for Thanksgiving. Stuff your face with turkey. Uh, is there anybody that doesn't like turkey around here? <laughs> yeah? It's like I can take it or leave it, you know? Um, but why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 18. We're going to go to 22. It's short. But last week we talked about Jesus saying something like this. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
He was actually perfectly comfortable sitting with sinners around the dinner table. Somebody last week uh, just told me that after this message, they got to experience that. They got to be around the dinner table, so to speak. And somebody had asked him, he said, what are you doing with, uh, I think he was playing a video game or something. He said, what are you doing uh, uh, hanging out with sinners? You're not supposed to do that as a Christian. He's like, oh, the last week my pastor talked about that's exactly what we're supposed to do. (laughs) And that the only way to reach the unbelieving world is to be around them. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, he wasn't nervous. He wasn't saying, oh, be careful, Christians, that you might become like him. He was perfectly secure. He was the son of God. He wasn't going to change because he was hanging out with sinners. In fact, that's the reason why he came, Luke 19. He came to seek and save the lost. As you sit around the dinner table, as, you, as you're around your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents and your family members, your brother or sister, friends, family friends, every year you get an opportunity, a fresh opportunity to be a light for Jesus. And don't be insecure. Don't, be, don't try to isolate yourself. Or That's exactly what the Pharisees did. And we'll look at that next week. And we'll talk about the, the Sabbath and, and how they had all these different rules. And, and what they were more interested in anything else is the separation, separation. In fact, that's what Pharisee means, to separate. As you see, Jesus, he walked on the scene. His main objective was to seek and save people who knew they were lost. If you knew you were lost, and those tax collectors, they knew very well they were lost. Really, the enemy, the arch enemy in that table, or at least outside the window, were the Pharisees. They always are. They're the enemy of the true religion. This morning, what we're going to talk about is that basically that the gospel of Jesus Christ is incompatible with world religions. Every religion. In fact, the devil repackages world religions all the time. He's, just, he's repackaging old heresies all the time. You see it in the Charismatics. You see it in the Roman Catholics. You see it in all the cults, the major cults, and Seventh-day Adventism, which we'll touch on next week, or Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witnesses. So many. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, the Charismatic faith finds its roots in the Montanists in 150 AD. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, it even goes back even further to Acts 8 when you see when Philip was, uh, was there and he's evangelizing and the, and the disciples were there. They needed to come from Jerusalem to check out that the Samaritans were getting saved. And then who, you know, this, this man named Simon came along and wanted to make a profit over the religion. We see that on TV all the time. There's nothing new under the sun. The enemy is always counterfeiting the true gospel. And I'd like to say is that there's nothing more damning than to mix the gospel with false religion. It damns people. And people need to know the truth. The truth will set people free, free from bondage, free from hell. And that's what Jesus came to do. It'll get pretty ugly as you get through the Gospel of Mark, right? And you'll see the beauty of Jesus against the backdrop of pure religion, 
uh, our uh, uh, faulty religion, the darkness of, of, of uh, the Pharisees and man-made religion, obstacles to the true religion. And you see that over and over again. But Jesus today, what he does is he shows us by way of illustration that these two can never mix. He didn't come in to this world to just add on to your life. He's not some addition. In fact, he came to wipe out all false religion and so that he stands alone. And that's good news. That's good news to everybody at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, isn't it? Now, why don't we go ahead and look at verse 18. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And so, as you see throughout the Gospels, you'll see in the other Gospels, Luke and John and Matthew, you'll see that... Uh, that they always questioned Jesus' behavior when it was contrary to their religion. It raised the flag. It was like, whoa, wait, hold on a second. This is different. And I want to point that out. And they're always trying to uh, trap him. If you remember, I mean, throughout the whole of the Gospels, they're trapping him. And, you know, where should this coin go? Should you give money to Caesar? And you remember those. They're, they, you know, what, what happens when, when, uh, when, when somebody, when a man dies, you know, and, uh, you know, how, what does marriage look like? And, and they're, they're always trying to trap him in either the religious jargon or, or politically. They're always trying to trap him because ultimately they were very threatened by him because they're perfectly... Fine. They finally got to the place where they were powerful and nobody questioned them, the Pharisees. And as soon as truth came in, we got to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling. You can see that politically today, right? Right? It happens everywhere. It could happen in your workplace. Maybe the guy's in charge. They finally got to the place where they're fully in control. And then truth comes in. Light comes in. And then, you know, people get a little uncomfortable about that. And so that's the scene. That's what's happening. Nothing's new under the sun. It's happening today in the religious world, in churches. It happens in the political world. Darkness hates truth. And it will do everything in its power to eliminate it. But it can. As we've seen in the Gospels. You can see how this has already started. This is going to get ugly as we go through, but it's going to also be incredibly helpful and life-giving to those who want truth, those who want Jesus. And it will be very uncomfortable for those who love darkness. And people say, John, isn't that offensive? My job is to offend you. Every week. And I hope I do that. You can let me know how I do week to week. So what's going on here? The teachers are responsible for the behavior of their disciples. So they go to Jesus first. They said, look, you know, I noticed that your disciples don't do what John does. I noticed your disciples don't do what the Pharisees do. Now, it looks like John's disciples and the Pharisees were kind of in cahoots. Now, they were to some degree. Now, we also know that John's disciples, remember that one time when John says, ah, behold, the Lamb of God. And they left John to go follow Jesus. Well, not every one of John's followers were, became followers of Jesus. 
Some of them said, okay, well, I'll become a follower of a Pharisee. I, I want to join their ranks. We all know that legalism has its benefits, doesn't it? It makes people feel good. It makes people feel righteous and holy. When they see somebody, if they made up a man-made rule, if you make up a man-made rule in your own home or whatever, uh, or your workplace, if people don't obey that particular rule, it makes you feel good because you're obeying it. Right? <laughs> so legalism has its benefits. It really does. We'll talk more about that next week uh, as we get into it more. But the concern was with Jesus. Look, you're responsible for your people. You're not being a very good rabbi, are you? No, you're not. We need to do something about that. Let me help you out a little bit. You need to fast. Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't say this, but he understands the law. And I want to say this, that legalists will always tap on to the, to the law. They will always add to. It's always about addition. It's always about more. They want to add to the burden of the people because it keeps them in control. It keeps the people down, right? That's why you see in the book of Acts, it just got out of hand. What are we going to do with these people? It's just getting out of control. It's getting out of hand because you're disrupting the normalcy, the things that I built. The things that I made, religion says, doesn't it? Well, let's just go to the law then. Let's figure out, what are they right? I think we have to look at this. It's very important to look at the background material, not just what you see. Keep a finger on the text, always. But as you look at the background, this is going to be very helpful because there's only one required fast. You know what that was? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Right? So there's only one required fast. So where are these people getting this stuff from? So, and that only happened at a very specific time. And we'll look at that here. Leviticus 16, 29 says this. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is this day that the atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statue. So what was really happening here is they were to mourn over their sin as a nation. It was it, that's what fasting was meant. And for a couple of reasons, we're going to look at a few other uh, reasons for fasting. But one of them was to mourn over your sin. It was to refrain from food so that you could spend more time praying and focusing on the Lord. It wasn't some sort of work to earn uh, more uh, favor with God, but it was, it was meant to be uh, a place where, hey, I, I don't even feel like eating because my sin is so horrendous and so offensive to God that I can't even think about food. Does that make sense? So that's what's happening. So this has nothing to do. So they, they, what they did, the fa fasting was a tradition of the Pharisees, and they fasted on two days. And we get that from Matt, uh, Luke 18. They twice, remember the, the Pharisees like, I fast twice a week. And that was on Monday and Thursday. And so they added to the law. The law just required, look, you could do it two ways. One, you have to do it on the Day of Atonement because it's symbolic of saying this is, God's going to take care of the sin of the nation all in one swoop which he did, mimic that mirrors what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary. But also there was volunteer fasting. 
You might have seen that throughout the scriptures in Judges 20 or 1 Samuel 7. Or you also see that in Esther 4. That there was this volunteer fasting to say, hey, look, we're going to be annihilated. like, we're going to be annihilated by the people of Persia. The whole Jewish race is going to be wiped out. We need to fast. It actually doesn't say prayer, but it was already assumed that fasting and prayer, they go together. And so when times of intense, like, you know, when, when the pandemic happened or uh, when it was, we didn't know what was going on, would it kill everyone? You know, we didn't know. We fast and we pray and, you know, the second Chronicles 7, you know, if we humble ourselves before the Lord and we pray and seek God, God might come and heal our land. It's a desperation. It meant something. It wasn't just some sort of show like the Pharisees saw. You remember Matthew 16? It said that, uh, you know, they, they would, uh, or Matthew 6, Jesus said, look, don't let your right hand know your left hand's doing. Don't let, don't, when you fast, don't look like you fast. Don't run, oh, look at how skinny I am. I just, I'm, you look the same, but <laughs> nothing's changed in three days, you know. But just the, it's to clean yourself up, look good, uh, act like you've eaten a full meal, because no one needs to know that. But the Pharisees, they paraded all the religious things that they did, which was giving, uh, giving alms and prayer and fasting. They prayed the streets. We're praying. Now, we need to be careful of that as well. Maybe that doesn't show up the same exact way, but I would imagine that you tuck a few things in there in that conversation to let people know what you've been doing. You know, last week I was fasting. What was that? Fasting. Yeah, it's amazing. What? Yeah. Well, also, you know, I, I get up in the morning and, you know, I... 45 minutes and oh, I just got carried away in the Lord. I, I ended up missing work and I was praying for three hours. I just, I totally missed the, the alarm. It was just, because I was praying so loudly. <laughs> Maybe we don't even do that. But we have these little ways of impressing our friends, don't we? Of the religious things that we do. And even good things. Jesus is saying, well, I mean, Give. Yeah, that's a good thing. Prayer is a good thing. Fasting is a good thing. It's appropriate. In fact, even today as we fast, when you, there are times when I have fasted voluntarily, but God initiated the fast. Well, how did he do that? Because when you go through something hard, you can't even think about eating. It's not like, I think I'm going to fast tomorrow. You know, things are kind of hard. No, no, no. It's more like everything in the Christian life that's probably done right with the right motive is done in hindsight. You look back, you're like, oh, I, I, I guess I fasted. Now, how would you know that? Because life is it's so difficult. When, when, you, when you know, a loved one is, 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 uh, is sick or they're hurting or you are sick and you don't know what the results are going to be, you just don't feel like eating, do you? Right? It's not depriving yourself of food to punish yourself. That's what the Pharisees did. But true, genuine fasting was voluntary. Voluntary. It was saying, look, I, I can't even think about putting anything in my I'm just not hungry. And so what are you doing? You're praying. You're not even thinking about food. You don't even know deities. 
You eat just, oh, I, got, I just, you grab a bar or something like that. You know, at the end of the day, just, I got to put something in there. It was meant, you know, for intense times of praying. And I've heard stories where, you know, a child has brain cancer and, you know, and a pastor would pray. Uh, one of the, it, was a, it was a pastor. It was terrible. that someone's going to die. I mean, he, he didn't, like, eat for a week. But he wasn't like, I think I need to, I need to fast because God will hear my prayer more. There's nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with how God hears the prayer. It has everything to do with this intense prayer that you don't even have time to eat. You don't have time to check the mail. You don't have time to do anything else. And the Pharisees abused this. Isaiah 6, 58, 3 and 7 says this. Why have we fasted and you do not see? I mean, is that the faster so to speak, is asking this question. He's saying, God, why, why do you not see? Do you see this? I'm doing all this religious stuff for you to, 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 so that you would perform for me. He says, I'm not interested in that kind of fast. Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you'll find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with the wicked fist with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make up your make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose a day for a man to be humble to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? All these kind of religious gymnastics. God say I'm not interested. Will you call this fast even an acceptable day of the Lord or to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of weakness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? It's to do good. Bring the homeless poor to your house into your house when you when you see the naked to cover them. He's not interested in just religious. Acts, gymnastics. He's not interested in those things. Stop doing those things. As if it's somehow going to bring you closer to God or to have him perform a little bit more quicker for you. That will end up in disappointment. He's saying, look, you're better off not fasting from food, but to do good things for people. To do good things. To have love. Compassion. That's what this passage is all about this morning. The Pharisees missed it. They totally missed it. And in the next passage, we'll see again and again and again that Jesus desires compassion, not sacrifice. He's not interested in your sacrifices. So then we move on. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. And so while Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was about mourning and fasting and, 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 and being sorry for your sin, weddings are for celebration. We've done so many weddings as a church. And Israelite weddings were not this 20 to 30 minute quick, fast ceremony. Pronouncing the husband and wife, boom, you're done. And then let's get to the food. Two hours later, everyone goes home. No, no, these guys, 
They celebrated for a week. So that's what we need to do. <laughs> so we have your little wedding invitation. Isaac and Jamie. You need, to, you need to come up with a budget. Keyword is budget. For us to feast, to celebrate you for a week. It'll be a glorious time. And if you're doing a destination wedding, you put us all up in a hotel on the beach. I will be there. And we'll, we'll just celebrate all week long. So Jesus' point is, look, you don't fast at a wedding. That was illegal. You, you don't do that. Can you imagine? Hey, you know, you, you sit down for a meal. We're ready to eat. And all of a sudden, the, the guy, you know, Isaac stands up. He says, look, I just want to let everybody know we're fasting today. Oh. So I want to let everybody know that. We had some budget concerns, and we're just, you know. <laughs> really, the reality is, we're not really concerned for our marriage. And we, need, we need to pray. We need to fast. No. You celebrate. You celebrate. The king has arrived. You see, Mark is clear. He's here. And when the bridegroom is here, there's no reason to mourn. There's no reason for that. There will come a time when that will happen, he says. In fact, this is the first time you can mark it. This is the first time that Mark mentions that Jesus is going to die. Now, where do we get that from? Isaiah 58, 53a, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. One day the bridegroom's going to be taken away. And in one sense, he is away, but he's with us. But what he's talking about, something very specific and something that's only going to last a very short time because he's resurrected and he's now with us. He's going to be in the tomb for a little bit, for a few days. It says here, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. So Jesus would be taken away. And he's saying, look, at that time, it's not going to be some show like these jokers are. This is going to be real fasting because I'm gone. But right now I'm here and it's cause for celebration. And it's interesting that he's calling for a party while the religious guys are calling for a fast. You can see the difference, can't you? This religion doesn't mix. Jehovah's Witness does not mix with the true gospel, does it? No. This Jehovah's Witness is a works-related gospel, or no gospel at all. Roman Catholicism, which we've talked about weeks ago, that's very offensive, isn't it? They worship the same Jesus, but it's a works righteousness, according to the Council of Trent. It's a false religion. The Muslim faith is a false religion. Hinduism is a false religion. It doesn't mix. We can't do things together because they just don't mix. Right? It's impossible to do that. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to go away and it's going to be heartbreaking and there's going to be genuine fasting. He says this in John 16, 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And that's sad. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. When did that happen? 
when they got to be with Jesus and stick their fingers through his wrists. And they realized he came back. Remember when Peter, he just jumped into the water. The Lord's here. You know what I love about this is the word of God is true, isn't it? He said this before Peter jumped in the water. Your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that child has been born into the world. It's short-lived. And you're going to fast. There's a time to fast. But this is a wedding celebration. And these guys want us to fast but we're celebrating. And what are we celebrating? Just a few, few verses before, they're at a party, physically, celebrating who? Levi. Matthew. That he was lost, and now he's found. That's cause for celebration. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one. Don't let anyone ever take the joy of the Lord away from you. The true joy of the Lord. Not, not some short-lived joy in sin. Sin is pleasurable right for a moment, and then it leads to what? Death. But true joy. True, real joy. That is a wonderful thing. And people have that. And there's always a religious phoning that always comes around to try to ruin that joy. Whether at the workplace, at the dinner table, with family, whatever. Why are you laughing? Why are you always so happy? Did you ever get that? What's wrong with you? Are you ever sad? Yeah, I am. I mean, when things go wrong. But also there's this thing called joy that has nothing to do with circumstantial happiness. And that is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That so no matter what happens in our life, we can choose joy. And that comes from the gospel. That comes by grace. Jesus is clear. He's saying in this passage, look, don't miss the point. He's clear that these religions don't mix. They're completely opposite. Judaism is completely opposite of Christianity. Don't let anybody lie to you. Don't let anybody lie and say, oh, it's the same. It's just a little different. No, it's really different. And I'll show you why, how it's so different and how they're so incompatible. It says here in verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. And the results, the new, the new from the old and the worst terror results. In other words, what he's doing, he's going to give three metaphors. The one he's going to do is a cloth metaphor, then the wineskin metaphor, and then he's got one last one in Luke we find. And so he gives this metaphor to show you that you cannot come to the table with other religions and find any commonality. It'll be a very superficial unity. It won't mean anything. There's no substance. They will eventually just burst. Or pull away. There's going to be a separation. The goats and the sheep. The good fish and the bad. And the day is coming. John 9 is so clear. The day is coming. 
the hour is coming. And I think that's a really good word for our country. And it's a good word for the world. But this is what he says about the cloth metaphor. It's simple, right? You take, you take an old garment and it rips, right? And you take something, you take a new patch, it's a little square patch, and you try to patch it. And so, but you take the unshrunk patch, you take something, you take a, a patch that's new and you put it together, you sew it together, you wash it, you let it dry, and eventually it just tears. Because you took an unshrunk patch and put it on something, uh, clothing that was already shrunk. It doesn't work. Jesus did not come with a message to patch up in some old system. He came to literally obliterate false religion so that he could institute a new one. Amen? Amen. He's saying you can't mix this stuff together. You can't do that. And to try to keep peace with family. To try to keep peace and hold on. You're holding on by a thread. To try to find commonality with a Hindu is foolish. We don't share 390 million gods. We have one. We have one God. And he is the savior of the world. We don't pray to Mary or saints. We don't have a patron saint for everything that goes wrong. We have a God who helps us when everything goes wrong. We have one God. And this message isn't really necessarily to pick on all these religions, but I do that on purpose first because I'll show you the subtleties towards the end of the message, how we all have them, every one of us in this room. And more the, the more subtle it is, the more dangerous it is. It's like taking a massive, you know, gallons of water, drinkable water, and just putting one drop, tiny, tiny little drop of poison in it. And then saying, you know, there's the, the, the ratio is just, I mean, doesn't even compare. But I don't think one of us would try it. Not one of us. That's what false religion does. And the more subtle it is, the more deceiving it is and dangerous. It's just as dangerous. The wineskin metaphor, what he says here, is no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one who puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, a lot of people use this for a way of metaphor or leadership metaphors or different life metaphors, and that's fine. And that works. But Jesus, in this context, in the context of him calling sinners to repentance, being the physician who calls people that know they're in sin to repentance, he sees Levi, he calls him, he brings him home, he goes to a party, he celebrates that this, there's new life. And people are have, giving him a hard time. And he says, look, the reason why these guys are giving me a hard time is because simply they have another religion. That's his point. He's giving it by way of illustration. And so back in Joshua 9, 4 and 13, wine was stored in containers made from animal skin, specifically goat skin. And so what would happen is they take the goat skin, it's kind of gross, they turn it inside out. And uh, they cut, you know, they cut near the legs and near the neck. And the neck was the part of the spout where it pours out. And they tie the legs, or they tie the skins at the bottom. And then basically they would put, as a new wine skin, they put wine in there. And over time, the skin would get old. And they could no longer put the new wine into the old wine skin because it would, it'd be cracked. The old wine skin would be cracked. And it wouldn't be as pliable. Of, uh, and, and, yeah, so it, it would, it basically it would burst. It would, it would fall out. And then you lose all the wine. 
be a waste. And so they have to make sure that over time they have to give, put a, a, a get a new wine skin and put the new wine in there. And Jesus is basically saying law and gospel don't work. False religion and Christianity, they don't work together. Something's going to happen. It's going to burst. It's not going to last. And he made his point. And then this last point, you find this in Luke 5.39. I think this is such a great illustration. Jesus is, how many of you know he's the most profound teacher on the planet? Incredible. Watch what he says here. No one, after drinking old wine, wishes for the new. For he says, the old is good enough. What was he saying? How hard is it to get out of an old religion because of tradition? When you talk to people on the streets, when you go overseas and people are in an old religion, they're in their religion that they grew up in. They don't want new wine. It's so habitual. It is so a part of their life. Look at the profound nature of this statement. They are totally desensitized. They're not interested. It, they like the old taste. It's familiar. The old religion of works is familiar. You know what? It, 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 in one sense, when Adam and Eve, it's the old trick, right? They, they, they messed up. What did they do? They wanted to cover themselves. They didn't wait for God. This is the oldest religion we have on the planet. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Works. People want to present themselves to God the way they want to. They, will, they cover themselves. They do certain things. They come up with certain ways to, to, uh, to please God. Even on their own. They tap on not just the scriptures, but they tap on more in their life just so that they can please God. They go through rituals so that they can please God. Every time they sin, they go through a ritual. We do this. This happens all the time. They had no desire for the new because they were drunk and intoxicated on the old. And you're thinking, no, take the new wine. It's incredible. Now, I like the old. I want the old. Cults and false religion are revolve around just habitual familiarity. This is how we have always done things. And it was in that system, the perfect timing of the Lord, in that system of the Pharisaical religion, Jesus shows up on the scene and says, This stuff is false. This is going to damn everybody. I'm telling you, it is so evident today. Look at politics today. It is built on what you believe is right. And you feel good about that, whatever side you want to be on. Whatever lies you want to be on. Because both are telling lies. For their own purposes. Their own gain. And it's so familiar for them. 
And they have, it's a religion. They have followers. One's called CNN, the other one's called Fox News. It just tries to get more followers, more followers, more followers. They can give a rip about you. They want more followers. They want more money. They want more power. Some have truth. There are half truths. One truth over here, some truth over here. It's all mixed. There's one gospel. There's one Lord. There's one King. Jesus Christ. That's why it's so hard to get people out of politics, out of their old religion, because they like the old wine. They're drunk on it. They're deceived. They're intoxicated. They're lost. And Jesus gives this amazing illustration and says, no one. You remember how narrow it was? Remember Matthew 7? The narrow road, do you find it? He's saying no one. Very few people drinking old wine wishes for the new. He said, the old's fine. Just leave me alone. I'm good. Go find someone else to talk to. The whole point of this passage is just to show you the exclusivity of the gospel that you can't build with other religions. You can't mix Christianity with false religion. It's impossible. Listen to what Spurgeon says after I read this. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. You can read it on your own. But just the one line says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness and lawless have or darkness and light? But Spurgeon says this. Did you ever notice that the intolerance of God's religion... A thousand errors may live in peace with one another. But truth is the hammer that breaks them in all pieces. In all in pieces. A hundred lies in religions may sleep peaceable in one bed. But whenever, excuse me, wherever Christian religion goes as the truth, it is like a firebrand and it abides nothing that is not more substantial than, than the wood, the hay, the stubble, or, or carnal air. All the gods of the heathen and all the religions are born of hell and therefore being children of the same father who is the devil. It would seem amiss that they should fall out and chide and fight, but the religion of Christ is a thing of God's. Its pedigree is from on high and therefore when once it is thrust into the midst of an ungodly and gainsaying generation, it hath neither peace nor parley nor treaty with them for it is truth. And cannot afford to be yoked with error. It stands upon its own rights and gives to error its due, declaring that it hath no salvation, but that in truth and in the truth alone is salvation to be found. Look, there are two kinds of false religions. People ask me, remember we were going through that season where we were exposing false religion and people used to ask me, like, what is exactly false? I mean, it's in every... Basically, every book of the New Testament, you see Paul arguing it, you see Jesus, you see Jude, you see Peter, multiple, I mean, John, they're all saying the same thing. But what is false religion? And I'll just break it down in two nice, neat categories. Number one, which is the obvious, is that they blatantly deny the truth of the cardinal principles of the Christian faith. And there are plenty of those. It's very obvious, right? You see all the other religions. But I want to take the remainder of this time to talk about what's in the room, what's here, what's before us. All that stuff out there, it's not like we're, I don't think anybody in here is adhering to any of the false religions that I just mentioned earlier. It is obvious, it's blatantly against the Christian principles. 
But something that's a little bit more subtle is the addition and the subtraction of the Christian gospel. It's something, it's, in other words, it's something that's required in addition to. It's so subtle. It happens. You have to, in other words, you can't come to this church and just say, oh, I love this church. It's so amazing. No, no, no. Stay for a while. Stay for a while. Stay a couple of years. Then you really get to know what we preach, right? It's the same as if you go somewhere else and from your visit, you're like, wow, that's so amazing. And then you realize, oh, no, 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 no. What are they teaching? Be careful of the YouTube videos you watch. Not everything that's labeled Christian is Christian. Might be some old patch going on some new patch going on some old pair of clothing. And eventually, it's going to rip. Eventually, it will be exposed. So Paul said to the Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, they had believed the gospel, but they also needed to do what? Remember? They needed to be circumcised. That was a big deal. And again, a lot of this stuff is not necessarily relevant to today. We're not talking about circumcision. We're not talking about Sabbath. We're not talking about those things. But I'll show you in a moment what we are talking about. And it's very relevant for all of us here. And we need to be careful of it. Because we all add to the gospel. All of us do. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Because it, you will, it will be exposed eventually. And so here's what he's saying. You, and Paul's saying, look, you're going to fall from grace if you do this. And so what is, what, what is mixing with Christianity today? What is mixing with Christianity today? I'm going to give you six different things that you can chew on this week. Number one, the major cults. You got Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventism, Mormons, Christian Science, Roman Catholics. They're all, they all mix in some form or fashion. Number two, the Charismatics. Now, the reason why this is important is because well, how do they add? They're all works related. But this is what Charismatics do. They said, look, you want to be closer to God? You got to speak in tongues. If you want to have more of an experience... If you want to be closer to God, you want to feel like you're in with the Lord, you got to do these things. You can't be satisfied with, with being uh, sick. you got to have more faith. How many times have you heard that? You know, the reason why people are suffering or the reason why you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with this or you have this problem or your kid is sick or whatever that is is because there's got to be some sin in your life or you have a lack of faith. So you need to up it. You need to fast. This happens on a weekly basis, I hear this junk. I hear this stuff all the time. From other people telling me that their family members are telling them, hey, look, you need to fast and pray more. That's why this is happening in your life. You are adding to the gospel of grace when you do stuff like that. You want to be a spirit-filled Christian? Then you need to have somebody lay hands on you so you can also go and heal the sick. Really? Who said that? That's not in anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> Nowhere. Nowhere does it say. I had a pastor tell me one time, they said, look, the reason why people struggle with sexual sin is because they don't speak in tongues. Hmm, what Bible passions is that? It's not in there. You know how dangerous that is? You're going to speak in gibberish so you can get over sexual sin? Come on. That is foolish. That is damning. You don't speak in gibberish. You speak in English. 
or Spanish, whatever your language is. <laughs> whatever your mother tongue is. Whatever mom and dad gave you. <laughs> but that's important because, you know, people are struggling with sin. They're struggling with it. And so someone says, look, every time that you have a lustful thought, just start going into gibberish and it'll go away. Really? You're adding to the gospel of grace. Number three, rededication. People do this all the time. They have to rededicate their lives over and over and over. How many times do you have to rededicate your life to Jesus? You only have to give your life to Jesus once. By faith. Because what kicks in at salvation is this thing called sanctification. And you grow and you mature over time. Isn't that a wonderful word? You're not going to be perfect right then and there. And that feeling that you feel of like, oh, I just feel like I'm never right. I feel like I'm never getting it right. I feel like, and so I got to give my life to Jesus every day or every time the pastor calls for people. No, 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 no. No, you don't. It's by faith. It's by faith you throw off all those hindrances, all those thoughts that you have to do this, 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 or that. You don't have to. The God who saves will sanctify you. The God who sanctifies will glorify you one day. And that's all his work, by the way. All three steps of salvation, if you even look at that, the Bible doesn't distinguish as much as you do. So the salvation includes all three. It knows that, yes, of course, you're going you're gonna to be saved and you're going to get a new nature. You're going to become a new creation. But guess what? Your, your, your baggage kind of still stays there. You know, Spurgeon, he called it like, uh, it was kind of interesting. He said, look, it's, it's almost like, you know, years ago, oh, years and years ago, when you were, um, um, if you were a murderer, the, the punishment would be you'd have to take the very body, the, the very one that you killed and strap it on your back. And you'd have to strap that dead carcass on your back. And over time, what would happen is it, it, would, it would start to deteriorate. Of course it would. Can you imagine the stench? It's like, I'd rather pick prison. Can I do that? <laughs> and it would eventually kill them. It was a slow death. Because they would catch whatever disease was strapped on the back. And Spurgeon was saying, look, that's what it is like to be a Christian. You're a new creation. You're a new, you're a new person. You have a desire to, to be with God. But you know what? You also carry around the old self. It's still remaining. So the, 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 the fourth one is the, uh, it's complete sanctification. It's perfectionism. That's a false religion. That's a Todd White religion. It says, look, I'm sinless. I don't have any sin. I haven't sinned in three years. Really? It's interesting. You know, the only reason why you have this is because you have your own standard of sin. That's the only reason why you say that. Because if, I, if, if the Bible actually took root in your heart, you find out you're undone. Because the Bible doesn't distinguish whether you are, you know that you sin. It just understands that you sin. Conscious or unconscious. And so how this religion uh, takes root, and if you think this is new, it's not new. Martin Luther spoke against this kind of complete sanctification in this life. And B.B. Warfield in the 1800s also did as well. Just by way of illustration, next time you, you open up your drawer, you'll probably take out some sort of utensil when you're cooking, and it'll probably most likely say Oneida on it. 
Oneida, we have some of that. Or, you, you know, the o OXO, you know, there's other different brands, but Oneida's on there. And Oneida was what, how it got started, the cooking company or the utensil company, how it got started was it was a commune. And what happened was they, they, they were perfectionists. They were complete sanctification type people. They believed in the gospel. But they also believed that you could be free from all sin, but yet they were caught and dissolved. The cooking company stayed, but the, the whole commune began to dissolve because they thought it was okay to have, or, to, to have orgies and to have, uh, to have them with kids. It was basically saying, look, it's a free-for-all. But how they got away with that is they understood that they had a certain set of rules that they made up. This is a Christian community. This is how cults get started. They deem what is important for them, and they tell everybody about it, and, when, and they, they, they understand the conscious sins. So they come up with a big list. This is the consciousness. This is what we need the whole congregation to do. And then you might think, well, what happens if they sin unconsciously? Well, that's called a mistake. They, they accommodate for their sin. And this happens all the time. This happens all the time. It's a misunderstanding of works and grace. Now, on one side, you have antinomianism, which just means without law. People are like that. They say, look, it's just grace, grace, grace. And, you know, we just, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sit on purpose just to prove how gracious God is. Well, Paul says that's foolishness in Romans, doesn't he? And then James says, faith without works is what? Dead. We can't live our lives that way. Well, then what is it? Works or faith? Isn't it interesting that in Romans it says that Abraham came to faith first before he was circumcised. That was Paul's argument in Galatians too. He says, look, don't you understand that way before Moses, like Abraham, then Moses. Abraham, then Moses. Before the law, I justified Abraham. That is encouraging for everyone in this room. Why? Because it's by faith that you please God. Hebrews 11 says that as well. Right? Works comes because we have been saved and now we have a new heart and we have a desire to please God. And to say the works doesn't matter, the law doesn't matter, that's silly. We love God's word. We treasure God's word. How may a young man stay pure by what? Living according to his word, Psalm 119. We love God's word. We need God's word. We need the spirit to empower us to live out his word. It's wonderful. But at the same time, legalism on the other side of the pendulum is equally dangerous. To add. Listen to Paul. He says in Romans 6 and 7, if you understand his argument, he says, look, you're no longer a slave to what? Sin. You're a slave to righteousness. He establishes that. That's your identity. You're no longer a slave to sin. You tell yourself that daily. You wake up and say, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. Lord, help me to understand. Help me to live that out. But you know what else he says in Romans 7? Very controversial, by the way. As a church, we say, we say that Paul was saved as he said that. And that's incredibly encouraging for everyone. The charismatics still say the opposite. They said Paul was not saved when he said, I, you know, 
why do I do the things that I'm not supposed to do? Look, everybody here says that. So are we all not saved? you got to be careful of this false teaching. It's rampant in the church. It's all over YouTube. Understand, Romans 7 is talking about a believer. Because at the very end, it says, who's going to actually deliver me from this awful back and forth conversation in my head? God will. He will. He's going to glorify you one day. And we'll never have that conversation ever again. And isn't it interesting? The closer you get to God, the more miserable you are. Think about that. Think about what I just said. Let me prove that. When Paul says something like this, Oh, wretched sinner that I am! Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I mean, I, I want to, I, I just, I'm so sick of sin. I'm tired of it. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. When's the last time you admitted that in a life group? Oh, you know, I struggle. <laughs> I'm such a sinner. I hate it. But listen to what he says in first, listen to what he says here, though. In 2 Corinthians 1 12, he says, I come before you with a clean conscience. How can he say both? How can he do that? How does he do that? How does he in one sense say, I have a clean conscience. I'm, I'm before I have a clean conscience. But at the same time, I am the worst sinner on this planet. Is he crazy? Has he lost his mind? No, he hasn't. The more you gain victory over sin, the worse you'll feel. You'll feel worse at the same time because you know what? The closer you get, the more you look like Jesus. The more you notice the sin. The more you notice that indwelling sin. The more you hate it. The more you struggle. You know, when I first got saved, it was glorious. I was 18 years old. I thought I was the... I, I, I am not the worst of sinners. I have been saved. Everybody couldn't stand me around me. Nobody wanted to be around me. My old friends or dog, I was, what is wrong with you? My family? But today, I, there are times you just want to hide your face. Today, you don't even want to lift up your head. Doesn't that sound like Luke 18? A man who just doesn't even want to look up to heaven. He's beating his chest and says, Look, how, how do you, God, how do you deal with me? How, how do you even look at me? But you don't stay there. Because Romans 8, as we said, the spirit of bondage is to stay in this place of slavery and fear God as a sinner. But we fear God as sons and daughters, don't we? We're not running away from God because he's about to zap us. We understand that he could zap us. But we're his. And we run to Abba Father. And that is the spirit of adoption. That you are in the orphanage. And he did come and waltz his way in there. And he did pay the redemption price by his blood to get you out of it. To rescue you. And you always will be an adopted son. He always will be our God. And that's a wonderful thing that we can look at him and say, Abba Father. And not be afraid of him like that. There's a good fear of the Lord and there's a bad fear of the Lord. 
We don't have to be afraid of him. When you notice that in your own time with the Lord, you're like, I'm, you know, just, you're just flinching. And if I went up to my kid and just put my arm around, I mean, they probably do because I tickle them to death, but, you know, stop. But if, if they're always like, because they're always, you know, going to get a crack, you know, or something like that, you know, like, no, no, that's not a father. You know, I was growing up in Italian, Italian home, my grandma, you want a crack? <laughs> no, I don't want a crack. <laughs> it's like, what is wrong with you, grandma? <laughs> You're scaring me. <laughs> That, that's not how God deals with us. He's already paid the price. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you want to run. And you can't run, the Bible says. You can't run. But as a believer, we stand. We say, look, I know that I'm a sinner. I know, that, I know the depths of my sin. But yet you look on Christ as you look at me. And I'm with you. And you'll never leave me nor forsake me. It's, it, it, but then I have this sense of fear, a good fear of saying, I don't want to dishonor you because of your love for me. Because you came down and you sacrificed for someone like me. Why would I want to sin? But then you do, though, anyways. Because you have that remaining carcass, that flesh that constantly makes its way up. And you have to do battle. But don't believe the lies that you could be perfect on this earth, you're going to drive yourself absolutely crazy. Amen? All right. Let me read this one quote by the doctor. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love this man. It was written 60 years ago. He says, stop talking to me about circumcision. I'm not interested. Stop talking to me about observers of the seventh day or any particular sect. Stop talking about all these things that are held to be absolute essentials if I am to be a complete Christian. I don't want them. God forbid that I should glory in the things that I do, he's saying. I will make my boast in nothing and in no one, nor in any special teaching, saving in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He is enough because by him the world has been crucified to me and I'm crucified unto the world let me put it plainly. I will not make my boast. I will not glory even in my orthodoxy, my, my, the, the right kind of beliefs, the faith, the tenets of the faith, the doctrines. For even that can be a snare if I make a God of it. And we can. We can. I will glory only in that blessed person himself by whom this great thing has been done, with whom I have died with whom I have been buried, with whom I am dead to sin and alive to God, with whom I have risen, with whom I am seated in the heavenly places, as Paul said in Ephesians 1. By whom and by whom alone the world is crucified unto me and I am crucified unto the world. Anything that wants to come in to the center instead of him, Christ Jesus, anything that wants to add itself unto him, I shall reject and so should we. Knowing the apostolic message concerning Jesus Christ in all its directness, its simplicity, and its glory, God forbid that any one of us should add anything to it. Let us rejoice in him and in his fullness and in him alone. Isn't that good? 
We don't need to add. It's not Jesus plus anything. We don't need to add anything. And you know what? That's incredibly offensive to our theology of works and to our religion of works. And when we add those two together, what you make is a pretty miserable Christian and it will fall apart, as Jesus illustrated. Let us get rid of the old. Let us get rid of everything that is old, that old system where we have to patch up ourselves to make us right with God or add anything else, even in our church, just adding little things Little, little subtleties to our Christianity, our relationship with God, that will destroy you. And not only that, but it will destroy this church. And God is saying that it's Jesus plus nothing equals life. Father, thank you so much for this incredible gospel and that you are showing us again and again by way of illustrations and pleading with us and trying to tell us in different ways through the message, through the gospel, and through this scripture that it's you and you alone. And God, I pray that we would trust you, that we give our lives fully to you and, and not add anything else, not a tradition, not some something from the past that even someone told us that might have been helpful for a little bit. You know, psychology works just a little bit. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Father, I pray that we would be a people that have true faith in Christ alone. That we even enjoy saying that, even out loud, in Christ alone. the reformers in scripture alone by faith in Christ by grace for God's glory and if it's us plus you then you get no glory you only get partial glory and what we know from the scriptures Lord you don't share your glory with anybody so Father give us that faith trust that it is good for you to receive all the glory and for us to sit back in our chairs knowing you've done it all. You've done it all. And may that set people free this morning. May it set people free from this frantic, quiet time life. This, this anxiety, this pressure. And to hear you say, come all who are weary. Weary of what? Not physical labor. But from the burden of false religion. Religion that we've made up even in our minds to please you. The little things that we've done to build ourselves up in front of you and in front of others. But rather, level us again by the beautiful gospel. Let us trust you, not by our works at all, but by your perfect work, your perfect sacrifice on the cross. We cling to the cross, we run to the cross again. We thank you for being obedient unto death so that we might be free. And as we take communion this morning, let us remember that. And if you need to confess some sin to the Lord, please do that now. And don't take the, the communion, the bread, which is symbolic of his body that was broken for you and the 
wine, or in this case, the grape juice, is, is symbolic of his blood that was shed for you. Please don't take that in an unworthy manner. The only way you can take that in an unworthy manner is to be flippant about it. As he said in 1 Corinthians 10, there was many who were sick and dead because they took it in an unworthy manner. May that not be found of us, but may we take this in a worthy manner. And the only way we do that is by thankfulness and by his grace. Knowing that what a wonderful, amazing symbol that that is what he's done for us. His body was shredded and broken and beaten. There was hardly anything left of him on a Roman crucifixion, on a cross. And that he uh, came down from that cross because someone took him down to give him a proper burial and then put him in a tomb. And everyone thought he was just going to hang out there forever. But he proved everyone wrong. He fulfilled those comments back in the Gospels that he said, three days later I would come back. And he did that. He is, a, he is a God we can trust because he's a God who fulfills his promise and his word every page of Scripture. And he came back from the dead. And because of that, he says in John 11, he says something so interesting. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I allowed your friend Lazarus to die for you, for your sin, so that you can believe that, yes, I can heal bodies, but I can also raise people from the dead. And actually, that's really good news for you, because once you die, you will eventually be resurrected. And that's good news for everybody. That we have absolute hope, no matter what tragic thing happens in our life. And there will be many. There will be many in this room. We cannot go the next 40 years without tragedy. But one thing I know is that we will have resurrected bodies and we'll see each other. Kids that we lose through miscarriage, kids that are dead before the age of accountability, we'll eventually see them in heaven. God takes care of them. He takes care of grandma and he takes care of the miscarriage. He's a good God and he shows that through the scriptures that he has power over death. And so... Let's worship him. Let's take communion and be thankful for what he's done for our lives. I know all, all the sin that you've done, past, present, future is forgiven. And then we can worship him now and for all of eternity. All right, so what I want you guys to do is uh, you guys come from uh, this section and, and, and this section and just come, make your way up. Come this way. Make your way up. Grab the bread. Dip it in the wine. And then move through the center aisle back to your seat. Sound good? And they'll, they'll worship, we'll, we'll worship while that happens, right? Have a great week, guys. Enjoy Thanksgiving and share this amazing message of the gospel with your family and friends.